it's important that when your mouth and your heart are in sync with one another and you speak from that place, supernatural things happen. It is so important. The Bible teaches us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, what happens? It brings about salvation. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. So whenever your mouth, your words, and your heart is in sync, then you'll have what you say. Too many times people speak, but they don't believe what they're saying. Or they may believe something, but they won't speak it. And so your words and your faith, your words and your heart, your entire being, once you get in sync with one another, you will find that when you speak a thing, it's going to happen. Like Yeshua said, whatsoever you ask in his name, it shall be done. And we're going to see that when you speak in the authority that you have been given by him, then you will see. And knowing this, you will certainly, hopefully, be careful about what you say. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. After Israel left Bethel, Rachel went into labor. She brought forth a son, but she died in the process. She named her son Benoni, but Israel called him Benjamin. Rachel was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is called Bethlehem. As the firstborn, Reuben would have inherited his father's possessions, but by sleeping with his father's concubine while his father was still alive meant that he was taking possession of an inheritance he had not been given. As a result, Reuben lost his place as firstborn. Israel had four firstborn sons by four women. When Reuben lost his status as firstborn, Joseph became the next in line and was given the firstborn status. Today's study title is The Sons of Israel. So, let's study. Again, we're going to be talking about the sons of Israel. And as I stated a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the children of Israel. And the children of Israel, well, I'll get into that. Jacob, we know after he had had this encounter with Jehovah, and the Bible says Jehovah left him, he was at Bethel in the place that he had been instructed to go. And now, for whatever reason, he leaves Bethel. And as he is coming to it right, Rachel went into labor. And in the process of her labor, she brought forth a son, but she died in the process. And as we're going to see, she named her son Benoni, but Israel called him Benjamin. And so in verse number 16, it says, And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, or Ephrath, as some would say. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, 
and that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Hamin or Benjamin. Now, Benoni, that is, it means the son of my sorrow. And it's something how when a name is put on you, especially a name that doesn't have a good meaning, Israel, for whatever reason, although it may have been the son of Rachel's sorrow, Israel said, no, he will be the son of the right hand, the son of the right hand. And so today, we know Israel's 12th son as Benjamin, not Benoni. And here's one of those cases to where if Israel had not said anything, the boy's name would have been Benoni. And the Torah tells us, you know, if a, if a wife or a daughter makes a declaration and the father or brother or the man hears it and doesn't say anything, it stands. But if he does, then it does not stand. And here's one of those times where a mom gave her son a name and the father changed the name of the son and says, no, it will not be that. It will be this. The birth of Benjamin was a fulfillment of Rachel's declaration at the birth of Joseph. And as I said earlier, you know, she makes a declaration. We can make declarations. And when our declarations are in line with father's word, and even as we get further in the, in the Torah, we're going to find that Israel, the sons of Israel, made a declaration concerning a king. And of course, that was not in line with father's will for them. But he allowed it to happen. That's something when we as a people, and, and I know that as, as parents, sometimes our children can wear us down. They will keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over. And you feel like, you know, if nothing else, just to be, shut them up. We'll give them what it is they want, even though we know it's not good. And there are times, parents, when you really have to stand. And of course, when you do stand and, and you deny and you say no, there's going to be some not so nice feelings in the process. But if you really care for your child, for your son, for your daughter, then, you know, sometimes you have to do that tough love thing. And of course, you know, when father is looking at the children of Israel, these are some stiff necked stubborn hearted people who, just like some of our children, whether you give in to them or not, they're going to do what they want to do. In Genesis chapter 30, when uh, Rachel was having Joseph, the Bible says, and she called his name Joseph. Now, interestingly here, Israel or Jacob at the time did not change the name. When she called his name Joseph, that name stood. And today we know Joseph is Joseph. But when she called Benoni or the son Benoni, he says no, and he changed it. Then that is what his name became. But then what did she say after she gave birth to Joseph? She said, this is a declaration. Jehovah shall add to me another son. Now, I don't know if he spoke that to her while she was giving birth, but as soon as she gave birth to that child, she made the declaration that she was going to have another son. What's interesting is that that declaration that she declared cost her her life. 
She had another son, but she died in the process. In verse 19, it says in Genesis 35, and Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now, here's one of those areas where the translator takes liberty. And I was thinking about that, how this happened. You know, if I'm writing a memoir, if I'm writing a biography, and I say that I was born in such and such, I'm speaking of the past in the present. If I'm speaking of the present or the past in the present, you may be pointed to the past, but you are hearing it in the present. And there are times when those things that were done in history that is spoken on in the present, it brings a person to a present state, even when they're thinking about something that happened many, many years ago. And this is what the writer is doing here, because he says, and Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. It wasn't Bethlehem at the time. You see, as a matter of fact, it didn't become Bethlehem for many years, but it's not Bethlehem at the time. However, when the writer writes it at the time or the translators, because this is commentary, this is neither Rachel speaking, nor is it anybody at the time speaking, it's the translator or it's Moses. And so I don't know if it was called Bethlehem, even in the day of Moses. It may have been. I have to do some searching on that. But the fact is, is that it's called Bethlehem, but it was called Ephrath. Rachel was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is called Bethlehem. As I said, it was not called Bethlehem at that time, which lets us know that the translators inserts the modern day name into that period when this all occurred. And this is one of the challenges that we have even today. Whereas people who use the name Jesus find Jesus in the New Testament, but you can't find Jesus in the Old Testament. The name Jesus does not exist in the Old Testament. And yet when people speak of prophecies in the Old Testament, they speak of these prophecies as if his name was Jesus when they were prophesied. Even going back, now we brought out the sixth, in the 1611 Bible, the 1611 King James Bible, the word Jesus is not in there. It's not there. And yet people, when they refer to the first century, when they refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which occurred in the first century, and Jesus is inserted in the first century, but he's not inserted in the King James 1611 Bible, which is 16 centuries later. <laughs> How could he not be in the 1611 Bible by the name Jesus, but yet be in the first century by the name Jesus? You see? And so people have a way of inserting the present into the past, as if in the past, that's what it was when the fact of the matter is that's not what his name was then. It wasn't even his name in 1611. <laughs> you get this. 
And so we have to be cognizant of what is actually written. And as students of the Bible, then we're able to now employ logic. Because I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of logic in the Bible. You can't turn your brain off. You can't turn your mind off when you're looking at the Bible, because then you find yourself in a position of illogic. And some of the things you say will be illogical. You can't back them up, and then all you got is an argument. And we certainly don't want to be in an argument with people. Ephrath would become a significant place in prophetic history. A prophecy concerning Yeshua was associated with this place. And Micah chapter 5 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And so what Michael is saying, there is one who is coming that has always been, you see, There is one who shall come forth that is to be, who's going forth have been of old from everlasting. In other words, he was way back yonder, but he's going to come forth later. (laughs) And that word, Ephrath or Ephrata, it means ash heap or place of fruitfulness, a place near Bethel where Rachel died and was buried another name for Bethlehem. So when you see that word Ephrath or Ephrata, here it is not Bethlehem. It will be renamed Bethlehem later. In the New Testament, it is referred to only as it points back to the prophecy of Micah. But Bethlehem is the most common name used in the New Testament. And so Bethlehem now is transposed. It is inserted (laughs) in history, even though it don't come forth until uh, later. And here's another one of those areas where we talked about how Jehovah now in two places called Jacob Israel. He changed his name. And one has to ask if Jehovah changed Jacob's name, why is he still being called Jacob instead of the name he changed it to, Israel? And so it's either Moses' writing or it is being inaccurately translated because Moses uh, certainly recorded the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, And he would have known because he recorded it. He didn't record it once. He recorded it twice where Jehovah says, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And yet in reference to Israel, Jacob is still being used instead of Israel. I've got my thoughts. And here is where, you know, I see, you see, we get both the old Testament and new Testament English translation from the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Latin. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, was also referred to 
by many as the Tanakh, which was also considered to be what is known as the Jewish Bible. And so we can see that if it's the Jewish Bible, then the translators are either, you know, Jewish or Greek or Latin or English, but there seems to be a separation from the man Israel and the land Israel. And in the process, when people today think of Israel, then they don't think of the man, they think of the land. And I would suspect that in the time when father changed his name, when people referred to Israel, they weren't referring to a land, they were referring to a man. And so now people's mind go to the man or to the land and not to the man. And I'm trying to help us understand scripture, I believe, as it was intended or as it was originally written and pointing out the probabilities. We cannot be ignorant of the fact that there are entities out there that is trying to deceive us, to confuse us. See, confusion, there is so much confusion in the land right now. And I'll tell you, when people are confused, they don't know what to believe. If people don't know what to believe, they don't know what to do. If people don't know what to do, they don't do nothing. Or they try this, or they try this. There's a lot of hit and missing, or a lot of floundering. The Bible says, but the people who know their Elohim shall be strong, and they will do exploits. The people who know their Elohim shall be what? Strong. And they will, they will do exploits. The people who know their Elohim is not going to be hitting and missing and being tossed to and fro and running here and running there and trying to figure things out. There are too many people trying to figure things out when the one who knows all things have already figured out. Instead of getting into the face or, in, you know, sitting at the feet of men, we need to be sitting at his feet, getting his understanding, his instruction, and we will know what to do. And then we'll be strong and then we'll do the exploits that we are instructed and ordained to walk in. When we read this verse, it would be easy to say that the pillar is there to this day. Now notice what it says. And Jacob or Israel set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Now the question is, is what day is he talking about unto this day? Now I'm going to tell you when you read that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day, what day do you think? You see that? That's what you would think. (laughs) We bring the past into the future. And in bringing the past into the future, we will speak the future into the past. We do that without thinking because we're wired that way. That's the way we've been, we've been instructed. And so there are two things, two options, possibly three. I don't think until today's day, because Understand something, this was written how many years ago? It's over 4,000 years. So until this day is a lot of, is a lot of years. <laughs> you get this. So the first unto this day would have to be for me the day Moses wrote it. So when, when Moses wrote this, the pillar that Israel set upon her grave, He could verify possibly that it was there. 
I would wonder if one go to Israel now and look for the pillar Israel put on Rachel's grave, if first of all, they would even find the true spot for Rachel's grave, and two, would the same pillar be there or would it be a replica? A tourist site, you see, that's what would be there. And we got to get our mind out of the way we think when we read the Bible and try to get into the mind of the Almighty, because that's the only way you're going to really be able to understand what is going on. So the first thought is that Moses, when he wrote it, put it there. Now, hundreds of years later, individuals who are able to put the pieces of the Torah, the fragments of the Torah, Israel was broken down in three regions. I know it is referred to as Palestine, but it was Judah, Galilee, Samaria. The Samarian Pentateuch, that's where I'm trying to get at. I got all this information floating around in my head, and I'm trying to put it all together. And so, you know, I'm, in a sense, confounding Septuagint and Samaritan Pentateuch. But it's the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is supposed to be the actual writings that had the most preserved fragments of the Old Testament or the Torah. In fact, it is believed that the Torah that we have today came from the Samaritan version or the Samaritan archives because it is believed that they are the people who had a complete version of the five books that Moses wrote. So that was then. Now, if we look at the translators who are taking the Pentateuch, they're taking Moses' writings and then translating them into uh, the, the Greek, it could have been the day that translation took place. And then if the Romans came and translated into the Latin, it could have been during that translation, or it could have been when it was actually translated in English until this day. We don't know, but we know where our mind goes when we read it. And this is not the only place in the Bible where it talks about until this day. And so our mind has a tendency to assume that it is talking about modern day, even though this writing is over 4,000 years old. When we read this verse again, it would be easy to say that the pillar is there to this day, but the writer Moses was speaking about the day when he wrote this passage is what I believe, or the translators at the time of this translation and writing, which was much later than the occurrence informs us that at the time of the translation or the writing, the place Rachel was buried still had the pillar that Israel placed there at the time of her burial. From there, Israel and his family traveled on toward Edar. And in verse 21, it says, And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. You see that? The tower of Edar. Now here, what's interesting in this verse, somebody read it in your version Chapter 35, verse 21. Now notice, and those of you online, if you look at it there in verse 21, it says, and Israel journey. Now in verse 15, it says Jacob. In verse 20, it says what? Jacob. Now, this is inconsistent. You see? There's some inconsistency. It goes back and forth from Israel to Jacob. But ultimately, when people pray, they don't pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. 
They generally prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. When Jehovah became Jacob's God, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. (laughs) Because prior to this moment, if you remember, when father said to him after the incident in Shechem, he says, go up to Bethel. And it was when he was going up to Bethel that he changed his name again. Right. But during that time, when he says, go up to Bethel, Jacob told the people in his caravan and his group and his family removed all the foreign gods. Now it doesn't say that Jacob was worshiping foreign gods. His wives had foreign gods. Possibly the concubines had foreign gods. Possibly the people who were with them had foreign gods. But the fact of the matter is that there was foreign gods among the caravan of Jacob and he knew it. Which says to me that the possibility is that maybe he had some mingling going on. I don't know. But we see that there were foreign gods which meant that he wasn't completely settled on who God was at the time. But when he spoke to him and told him to go up to Bethel, it was at that moment that he told the people to get rid of those foreign gods, to wash themselves, clean themselves up and put on clean garments. The tower of Edar is a tower of the flock. Uh, It is known as Migdal Edar which is a shepherd's watchtower near Bethlehem. Verse 22. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhar, his father's concubine. And Israel heard it. And then it says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. So we'll deal with these two things here. While living in Edar, Reuben went into the tent of Bilhar, Israel's concubine, and had sex with her. Now, remember, Israel had four wives or two wives and two concubines. The two wives were sisters, Rachel and Leah. Bilhar and Milpah were the servants of Rachel and Leah, handmaidens, and they were concubines. Now, later on, we find out in history that the firstborn, and Reuben was a firstborn, inherited the father's inheritance. So he would, have inher- he would have been responsible for his mom, his mama's sister, and the concubines. And if you think about it, as we get into the Torah, the Bible tells us in the Torah that a man is not to sleep with his mother's sister. So he couldn't have slept with Leah. So the concubines, which was in no relationship with him, he went in and he had sex with her. As a firstborn, Reuben would have inherited his father's concubines, and by sleeping with her while his father was still alive, he was taking possession of an inheritance he had not been given. He overstepped his bounds, and as a result, he lost his place as firstborn. Now, we don't see this until much later. In fact, we find it outside of of the Torah, and I'll show you that in a moment. But here's the second part. The sons of Israel were 12, but Israel had a total of 13 children. During the time that they were in Shechem, Simeon and Levi slaughtered Hamar, Shechem, the men of Shechem, and took their women and their children and the goods 
And at the time, Israel only had 12 children. He had 11 sons and one daughter. Benjamin had not been born. Benjamin had not been born. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and you'll see it in a moment. The sons of Leah. Now, here's the sons of Leah. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And here it goes back to Jacob now instead of Israel. And Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. These were the brothers of Dinah. And because Leah had the first son in the group, Leah, which was not the wife Jacob wanted, her son was the firstborn, which would have inherited all of Jacob's possessions. And he wasn't even the son. He was the son of the wife that Jacob got stuck with. And Leah said, verse 20, God has endured me with a good dowry. Now, I want to point out something here. We see these were the brothers of Dinah. So Dinah had six brothers. It was Simeon and Levi who did the damage in Shechem. Going back to Genesis 30, 20 says, and Leah said, God has endured me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And she called the last one Zebulon. And afterwards she bare a daughter and called her name Dinah. So when we did the teaching on the children of Israel, there were 12 children of Israel, but it was only 11 boys and one girl. And so I couldn't title it the 12 sons of Israel. Because he didn't have 12 sons, he had 12 children. And so it was appropriately called the children of Israel. So while you're dwelling on the sons of Israel, you'll see in a moment. The sons of Rachel, Joseph. Now, in identifying the sons of Leah, it tells us Reuben was the firstborn. So in essence, in the line of all the children, Reuben would have been the firstborn. So the sons of Rachel, and notice something here, because it doesn't say Joseph the firstborn, but Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel and then Benjamin. Now this is in chapter 35, verse 24, which is where we are. Verse 25, and the sons of Bilhar, Rachel's handmaiden, who was the firstborn? Dan, and then Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden, who was the firstborn, Gad and Asher. Here's where the problem is. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padan Aram. You see the problem? Only 11 sons were born to Jacob in Padan Aram. But you can easily miss this. And I would say that this is either a Moses issue or it's a translator issue. But there's an issue here because we read that Benjamin was born as they were going from Bethel to Ephrath. And that is not in Padanaram. That was in the land of Canaan, which father had promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Israel. You follow this? He is either a misprint, he is a translation error, 
something is wrong with this statement. Now, moving on. Israel had four firstborn sons by four women. When Reuben lost his status as firstborn, Joseph became the next in line and was given the firstborn status. Remember here, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now understand, Rachel and Leah had children. They were sisters. And of course, the concubines. Who was the wife Jacob wanted? Rachel. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we looked at this verse before. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. In other words, if he hadn't done what he, had, what he did, the genealogy would have reflected Reuben as the firstborn. But when he defiled his father's bed, he lost his status. And now Joseph became the firstborn. Joseph got the double portion. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they now were elevated to son status, and they were both given land instead of Joseph because of the double portion. So you got the land of Ephraim, and you got the land of Manasseh, which was during biblical time was the land of Samaria. And this, if we look again, as we looked in John chapter 4, when Yeshua said, the Bible says he must needs go to Samaria and he saw that woman at the well and the woman at the well who was a Samaritan who didn't identify herself as a Jew because she didn't identify herself as a Jew. The Christian mind says she must have been a Gentile. So the Samaritans are now Gentiles according to the mindset. But the woman herself says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this will. The woman didn't identify as a Gentile. She just didn't identify as a Jew. She wasn't from Judah. She was from either Ephraim or Manasseh. You see. And so if you don't understand biblical history as it is written, then we'll look at the scripture as we have been taught. And that's through the eyes and lens of our churches, of our denominations, of our teachers, rabbis, apostles, prophets, whatever. The fact of the matter is that we have to stick to what is written. If you stay with what is written, you're never at the mercy of men and their doctrine. You don't have to argue. See, men can't argue doctrine. I mean, they can, but their doctrine don't hold up to what is written. See, when you point to them what is written, they have a tendency to change the subject on you. I'm going to tell you, most of the people you have conversations with are going to give you sound bites. Why? Because that's what they've been taught. They've been taught sound bites. They've been taught verses out of context. And when you put the verse back in the context in a conversation with them, they don't understand the verse that they just eloquently quoted. And now they're frustrated you didn't frustrate them. They were frustrated before you met them. They just didn't know they were frustrated. They had what they thought was a leg to stand on, only to find out it wasn't a leg at all. It was a, 
you know, one of those limbs that fall out. When a limb fall out the tree, the thing is already dead. It may still have a little life in it, but eventually it's going to dry out and crumble. And you come along and just realize to them, you know, you don't have a leg. That's a peg. And it's dried out. That thing is going to crack and break on you. They make you think that you're, you're the one who's attacking their doctrine, attacking their, their religion. And it's not, I'm not just simply showing the truth, pointing people to the truth. We have to stop this soundbite ministry and keep things in the proper context. Because if we keep things in the proper context, then we can properly explain it and help equip individuals. And now people are equipped according to what is written. Genesis 35, 26. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden, Gad and Asher. Again, these are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padan Aram. Once again, we find the error in the writing. Twelve of Israel's children were born in Padan Aram. Benjamin had not been born when Israel left Padan Aram. Benjamin was born on the way to Ephrath, as mentioned in verses 16 through 19 of this chapter. And now verse 27. And now Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac sojourned. Now, what's interesting here is father told Jacob to leave Padan Aram, and to go back to his father's country. Jacob, through all of this now, is finally, and, and I don't know, um, if we look at what is written, one could say, and I don't necessarily think that's the way it is, because according to how we've just followed the passages, the impression is, is that from the time Jacob Israel left Laban that this is the first time he's getting to see his father. It would seem that way based on how things are written. And I find that a little challenging to believe, you know, that is saying that Isaac never saw his grandsons. And I struggle with that, but all we have is what is written. And so, Jacob came unto Isaac, his father. Again, Jacob instead of Israel here in verse 27. Unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And what does that mean? That means that Abraham sojourned there first, and then Isaac sojourned there. And now it seems as if Jacob is coming there. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years. We also see that it appears that Isaac and Rachel both died in the same year. At least that's the way it appears. Rachel's died and now Isaac is dying or died. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And here's where I struggle with the fact that this is the first time that Jacob is or Israel is seeing Isaac because we also know that when Esau met Jacob, that Jacob said he was coming, but he went into a different place. Esau went back to where he'd come from. And if that was the case, 
then how would one, they know, how would he know that his father's dead? And how would they be in communication to come and bury him? Because we see that when Isaac died, his sons Esau and Israel buried him. So there is some communication going on, even though we don't see it written. We have to believe that there had to have been some knowledge of communication, some form of letting one another know where the other is, because ultimately they came together. So Isaac is buried in the same place that Sarah and Abram were buried because they were all buried in that cave that Abraham purchased. In Genesis 25, 9, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So this is speaking of Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. There was Abraham buried and Sarah, his wife. So Sarah and Abraham was buried in that cave. And now Isaac is being buried in that cave and Esau and Jacob buries him in what would be the family's tomb or the family's plot of land where, or their burial plot or burial land. Amen. And so with that, we come to the end of chapter number 35. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.